You've never seen Jesus like this before. Dripping red nail polish around the nails in his feet and hands. An irreverent riff on the crucifixion wounds. The provocative title of the painting, Jesus Does His Nails. Blasphemous? Absolutely. Deliberately provocative? You bet. End quote. Well, participants were also encouraged to take up what was called the Blasphemy Challenge, in which individuals register their blasphemy in the face of Mark 3, verse 29. In that verse, Jesus warns, whoever blasphemies the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Those who take up the Blasphemy Challenge record video submissions, which must include the words, I deny the Holy Spirit. Well, for most of us, as sad as this is, I think we realize this is definitely a attention grabber, a political stunt. But there's something deeper going on here in this day. It's deep-seated. It's a hatred of God in the depraved heart of man. A hatred of God, particularly the God of the Bible. A hatred of Jesus himself. Jesus as creator. Jesus as redeemer. Jesus as master and our authority. We see it here. We see it many places. And whether you like it or not, this hatred, this enmity towards God and Jesus will involve you as a Christian. We will be opposed. This morning, we're going to read what I may call the fine print of the gospel. You know when you fill out a contract, it's all that fine print? In other words, the footnote or the asterisk beside the word Christian, as we see here in the gospel of John. It's the reality of following Christ in a fallen world. May we heed God's word as this morning, lest we fall away and deny him. So let's read the fine print together. Let us take heart and let us not be surprised as we hear these words from our Lord and Savior, starting with John chapter 15, verse 18, and I'll read through chapter 16, verse 4. The word of the Lord says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. 
But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you, to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let us pray. Dear Lord, dear Savior, I ask this morning that we would not despair. For this is a difficult word, and this is a difficult message. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would guard our hearts this morning, that you would fortify us in faith, in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I ask as well for those who we just read about, perhaps they even participated in this day of blasphemy. Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you soften their stony hearts? Would you have mercy upon them as you have had mercy upon us? For they do not know what they do. Oh, Lord, give us compassion. And may we stand for you. And yes, even suffer well on account of your name we pray. Amen. Well, the theme of this morning in your notes is simply this. Remember the world will hate you. In other words, you will, as a Christian, be opposed. Let me just give you my two concerns this morning right off the bat. Number one, my concern is this as I get up here at the pulpit. That somehow I would inadvertently communicate that we are whiny, defeated victims as Christians. It's not true. This morning is not about cultivating that defeated or victim mentality. It is not. Second concern, perhaps a little even greater, is that somehow I would feed or indulge this morning a self-righteous indignation that would justify your anger or my anger towards the world. Remember the old commercial? The lady said this with an arrogant, almost defiant. She said, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. (laughs) Or in my case, don't hate me because I'm from California. All right? Yeah. You know the attitude. It's said with a pride, with an edge towards those. As if it's the inferior speaking to the superior. That's not what we want to cultivate this morning. Joking aside, I I would not want to put into us a hardened, steely resolve that lacks compassionate engagement with the world. (coughs) Rather, I believe the aim of these words in this text this morning is quite different. It's to bolster your faith, your steadfastness, and your witness. See, today is not about hunkering down. It's not about attempting to shelter ourselves or somehow escape all hate or criticism. 
Today is about learning to run with the wind and the world in your face. Today is about learning to swim in the ocean and not be surprised by the rip currents, the rip tides that want to take you under. That's what today is about. For as we learned last week, we are not called to hide. We are called to abide. And abide and do what? Abide and bear fruit in the very world in which we live. Yes, the very world that does indeed hate us. Let us define this one, what we mean by the word world. That can be used in a variety of different ways. Let me give you an understanding of how it is used by Jesus and by John in his gospel this morning. Quoting from D.A. Carson, love this definition. The world is simply this. It's the created moral order in active rebellion against God. In other words, when we say world this morning, we're talking about all that is opposed to Christ. We're really talking about, folks, our very fallen nature when we use this word world. See, the world isn't just out there. The world is all around us. It's in the workplace. You know it. It's in the media. It's in our classrooms. It may even be in our homes. This is the world that Jesus says will hate us. Now, when I read that, I kind of wanted to change the words a little bit. I even put in parentheses, I think, in your notes. The world will oppose you. It's a little softer. I really wanted to use that as my theme this morning. But we can't get away from these words. I believe I counted this word hate is used eight times in this passage. The world will not just kind of not really like you. No, the world will hate you. Meaning the world will reject you. Why? Because they reject Christ. They reject the truth. They reject sin. They reject the cross. And even rejects heaven and hell. But many of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've experienced a type of rejection, hate, or opposition. As you perhaps try to share your beliefs and your convictions with others. When you stood up for righteousness in this world. Have you ever tried to assert any of the following politically incorrect truths before your professor, your teacher, your co-worker, or even your unsaved family member or friend? Have you ever made the exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way to God? Have you ever made the intolerant case that homosexuality is not a mere sexual preference. It's a sexual sin. Have you ever made the fundamentalist claim that the word of God is inerrant, without error, that it is authoritative, and it is the only word of God? That hell is a real place of everlasting torment for the unrepentant. If you have, you've felt the sting. Perhaps you have even from your own family members or even those you might call friends. See, as a Christian, you know what I want to do? I take a little door hanger we get in hotels that says, do not disturb, and I want to hang it around my neck. Please do not disturb the peace. That's how I want to live. But I can't as a Christian, and I must not. You see, you may say, well, Corey, the world doesn't really 
hate me, does it? I mean, yeah, it hates God. Oh no, it really does hate you. If Jesus is the vine and you are the branch, you are connected to Christ. And if the world hates Christ, let me tell you, the world's going to hate you as well. But my objective this morning is not to convince you of that, but to tell you that it is so. And to tell you why from Scripture. That we may take courage when we do taste the world's bitter gall. Let me suggest this morning that if you are not aware of the world's opposition to you and your beliefs, perhaps there's more of the world in you than you might think. It's called the seduction of the world. It's called worldliness. Hear this quote from Ian Murray. Speaking of worldliness. It is a man-centered way of thinking. It proposes objectives which demand no radical breach with man's fallen nature. It covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which it is worth suffering. It declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. You see, church, today we are speaking about living a life which demands a radical breach with our fallen nature. A life which knows suffering for Christ's sake, whether it be unpopularity, whether it be ridicule and scorn, whether it be persecution or even death. That's the life of a Christian. So why? Why? Why will the world hate you and me if we're truly followers of Christ? A, because you have been chosen out of this world. Let's look at verse 18 and 19 again. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Simply put, Jesus is saying, the world will hate you because you are not one of them. But you see, going back, you and I were born worldly. The world, in its act of rebellion against God, is in fact our very natural habitat, habitat as sinners. But you see, as Christians, we have been plucked from the world and brought into Christ to the atoning work of the cross. You see, Christ has purchased us. He has redeemed us by His shed blood on the cross, dying the death that we deserve for our rebellion against God. Why? That we might live. That we may no longer have affection for this world, but for God Himself. You see, the fact that He chose us to be recipients of His mercy... And that should be the cause of the greatest wonderment and amazement as it was for the Apostle Paul. Let us read Ephesians 1, 3, and 5. And let us capture the wonderment of Paul that we may have the same awe and amazement this morning as we go forth. Verse 3, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Not because we were holy and blameless. Not because God knew that we would be holy and blameless. He chose us before we even existed, before the foundation of this earth, to be holy and blameless before Him. Verse 5, in love, He predestined us for adoption. He predestined us, rebels who hated Him, to be His sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Church, there's no room for boasting this morning. There is no room for self-righteous indignation at the world from which we have been plucked. See, I'm concerned that we can read this in this passage this morning and think that something, there's some innate superiority about us that causes us to be chosen and thus separate from the world. As if the world had reason to hate us based on our innate goodness or our innate wisdom. It's not so. The Bible paints a very different picture. We decided for Christ because he first decided for us. We express faith in Christ and his forgiveness and his atoning work on the cross because he first opened our eyes because he, in fact, as it says in the word, chose us. What's the difference between you and that one person right now who you're thinking of, your enemy. What's the only difference between you and that person? Let me tell you, in the end, it's only this. It's only God who chose you in Christ. It's the only difference. We have no room for boasting or that type of arrogant hatred of the world. Yet in choosing us as objects of His mercy, Here's the rub. He also chose us to be objects of the wrath of the world. But why the hatred? Why the hatred of the world? Simply put, to quote one commentator, former rebels, that's us, will not be popular with those who persist in rebellion. That is the world. Any former gang member would know that all too well. To quote from a Time Magazine article entitled No Way Out, we read, Eddie Hernandez, 22, formerly of the Disciples on Chicago's Southwest Side Gang, recalls the first time he ever saw a guy, quote, being jumped out, meaning leaving a gang. They made this guy walk through an alley filled with gang members. He goes on to say, he was unconscious after only a few feet of beatings. In May, he told his fellow gang members that he had finally had enough. His former friends promptly jumped him and beat him, stabbing him during a knife fight. If they see me by myself, I'll be jumped again, he says matter-of-factly. Even those who endure a beating are not spared future harassment. And getting out means losing the protection of your gang 
while retaining all your old enemies who don't stop to ask questions. Those who do manage to escape their gang while remaining in the neighborhood are often sucked back in by a confluence of raw fear and sheer necessity. Friends, as Christians, we don't belong to this world any longer. We've been chosen out of the world, this world of rebellion and hate towards God. But the world still wants to drag us back at whatever the cost, even if it's the cost of our very lives. Why? Because you, by God's mercy and grace, have been chosen out of this world as a former rebel, now a child of God. And secondly, B, because Jesus is your master. I want to read verses 20 and 21 again to see this clearly. Christ says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Have you heard this word before? A servant is not greater than his master. It's a quote from John 13, 16. Remember when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Not only are we called to serve one another, not only called to wash the feet of our disciples, the very feet that we wash may kick us in the face. Oh, what happened to Jesus, i.e. Judas? And it will happen to his followers. We shouldn't be surprised. You see, but we, we like the association with Jesus, don't we? I like the fact that Jesus represented me in his perfect life here on earth. That all the good he did, his perfection, is now credited to me as if I have done it. I like that. I like the fact that Jesus represented me on the cross. That he was my substitute. That he took the death and the penalty for my sin upon himself that I deserved. When I am in heaven, when I meet my God and my maker, yeah, I'm with him, Lord. I'm with Jesus. Amen. There's another side to this as well. Do we like it when it means Christ's persecution will now become ours? See, as a Christian, we've been yoked to Jesus. The world has always set its sight on Jesus. And as his followers, you and I will be in its crosshairs. From Genesis 3 to the fall of man, all throughout the Bible, we see this cosmic struggle taking place between Jesus and and Satan. We see it in Genesis 3.15, right? This enmity between Satan and Eve's offspring, Jesus and his children. We see this enmity being played out in the desert of Egypt with a pharaoh who tried to kill not only Moses, a type of Christ, but all of Israel's baby children, boys. We see it played out in Herod as he tries to kill the baby King Jesus and commits infanticide. We see this struggle taking place in Revelation with the woman who gives birth to a son, Jesus. That war between the baby and the dragon. Revelation 12. We see it played out from Genesis from the beginning to the end. When we became Christians, we entered into the storyline. We entered into this feud. And it's much bigger than ourselves. Much bigger. You see, 
if Jesus, who was God, was persecuted, we, as his servants, will not escape persecution. Paul understood this truth quite well when he said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yet our flesh and our pride, they cry, no! Not because we here are necessarily being physically persecuted, but because most of us don't like being the objects of scorn or ridicule or hate. You see, flattery of the world, it's appealing, isn't it? To desire harmony and unity with the world, it's seductive. I feel the seduction, and I have certainly felt it, with teammates, with teachers, with friends in the past, with co-workers, with dentists, with mailmen, with neighbors. I have experienced it. I just want to put on that side, do not disturb the peace. I want to be cool. I don't want to stir up trouble. I feel a seduction. We can as a church as well. There are even those who say they're evangelical. And I want to apply much of what they're doing, but it, it's a lot easier to champion the environment, AIDS, world poverty. Those are not unimportant things. But what we can do is start championing that, those things, and begin to minimize, dismiss, or even discard the much more controversial things, i.e. the cross, the atonement, and hell. I feel the pull. I want us to be cool. I want to be a cool church. But I don't see how I can be cool if I'm preaching the gospel. It doesn't work that way. But I feel it in my heart. I know you do as well. It's what many of the Pharisees and those of Christ's time wanted. Yet Jesus reserved his very strongest rebukes for the Pharisees in their man-pleasing ways. Luke 6, verse 26, we read, Christ speaking, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. To quote one author, remember that a world that smiles upon you is a dangerous place. For a smiling world is a guilty and condemned world. Better the world be mad at me than the world be merry with me, lest I be ensnared by the world. Why does the world hate us? Because we've been chosen out of the world? Because Jesus is our master and see, because the world is guilty. Verse 22-24. Christ saying, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. You see, by coming and speaking to them, Jesus, quote, one commentator, incited the most central and controlling of sins. What was that sin that we're speaking about? It's the rejection of God's gracious revelation given to them. You see, many Christ's time, they rejected his works, the very signs that we've been studying here, the Gospel of John, And they rejected his word, his works, and his word. And they are doubly guilty and culpable. 
But that doesn't mean that if Christ had not come, they would have been perfect. No, rather I believe in stressing here the world's guilt, in particular of rejecting the revelation in God's kindness that was given to them. But the guilt is not just upon these eyewitnesses of Jesus, but upon the world today who continues without excuse. Well, why are they then without excuse? They were not there when Christ came. Let us read on verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. See, Jesus has made it clear that he's he's going back to the Father. But even though he's going back to the Father, his confrontation with the world will continue through his disciples, through those who follow him, through those who have his helper. As we learned two weeks ago, who's the helper? His Holy Spirit. You see, in other words, once Christ's physical presence is removed, the world's hatred would now turn towards his disciples and all who would follow in their path, all those who would possess the spirit of truth. You see, if we truly love Jesus, two weeks ago we talked about loving Jesus is to obey his commands. Last week we spoke about abiding in Christ. If we truly obey his commands, if we truly love him, if we truly abide in Christ, we will show ourselves to be Christ's disciples. But you know what else? We'll show the world that they are not. And there is the rub by our very actions and our very testimony. Those who love the world will hate us because their works will be shown as evil. So that's why the world hates us. Why is it so important that we rehearse this this morning? How does that have bearing on me today? Why is it so important that we remember this? A, in your notes, so you will not abandon the faith. Christ says it very clearly in verse 1 of chapter 16. I have said all these things to you that we just talked about. Why? To keep you from falling away. Falling away. Falling away from what? Falling away from our faith. The word used here, falling away, is actually the word that we get, the English word scandal. It speaks of stumbling, of being ensnared. Being ensnared by what? Being ensnared by the world and its vitriol and its hatred and its opposition to you. In other words, it's a term for apostasy. And it's scandalous. Friends, the greatest opposition from the world that we will ever face, the greatest danger from the world's hatred is not ridicule, it's not scorn, it's not persecution, it's not even death. It's apostasy. That is the greatest danger of the world, that we would fall away in our faith. In the book entitled Night, Nobel Peace Prize winner Ellie Wiesel speaks of the evil, the hatred, and the suffering which consumed his Jewish faith. Not only are his accounts of the World War II Nazi death camps chilling, but so is his description of his very own loss 
of faith in the face of evil and hatred. Speaking of his first night at the Nazi death camp in Birkenau, he writes, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Church, more died that night that L.A. Vizel is describing than just innocent babies. As horrific and shocking as that is, what died was a young man's faith in an omnipotent and loving God. You know what? It can happen to us as well as Christians, as professing Christians. That's why Jesus is telling us beforehand. He's not telling us this as as if we're some helpless victims. He's telling us this as his friend. He's telling your friend, I want you to know what is to come. I want you to know. Oh, yes, it's worth it. But I want you to know. I want you to know the fine print now. You will encounter hatred. You will be opposed. But remember this. You are mine. I have chosen to pluck you out of the world. And you are my child. And you'll be with me in paradise for all eternity. Oh, yes, you will. But yes, verse 2, chapter 16. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember, remember, remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And indeed, everything that Christ said did happen. And it did happen to his first disciples. They will, be, they will put you out of the synagogues. They will kill you thinking they're serving God. Oh, just read, my friends, the book of Acts. Read the story of the stoning, the martyrdom of Stephen, who was full of grace and power. <clears throat> read the story of the missionary journeys of Paul, and you will see. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the sea, danger in the wilderness, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. And he goes on. 
Church, read church history, and you will see. Read the story of the Czech, John Huss. Read the story of the English reformers, of Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer, who died at the stake, who were burned alive for their faith. Read the story of Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who was burned at the stake at the end of a church service. A sermon was preached, and then he was torched in front of all for his faith. And they thought they were doing it in worship and service to God. Read the story of Martin Luther, of John Calvin. They weren't martyrs, but they knew cruel hate. We'll be singing Luther's song at the conclusion this morning. Oh, sometimes the most intense persecution comes not from pagans, but from those who claim to be religious. Doing it all in the name of God. John 16, verse 2. Ah, but it's not in vain. It's not in vain. It is often through this very persecution and hate, whatever the motive, that God purifies and builds, grows and spreads his church. It was that way in Acts. Read Acts 1. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Flash forward to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The stoning martyrdom of Stephen. What happens? His disciples are scattered and the church goes forth into the known Roman world. Look today at the growth of the church in communist China. Look at the growth of the church in Africa. Phenomenal growth. Despite civil wars and genocide, much of what has been targeted at Christians. Oh, and there's much more happening that we're not even fully aware of. I've heard stories of what are happening in Iran amidst great persecution. God is building his church. As the once early church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it is. In this last century, 20, it is estimated that 26 million Christians lost their lives for Christ's sake as martyrs. 26 million. And yet the gospel marches forth. But you say, Corey, that's not me. I'm living in America. I'm not suffering any physical persecution. Well, I'm just saying, first of all, you may. You're not immune. But even if you never do, you have brothers and sisters in Christ, the very body of Christ to which you belong, who are suffering. That is why we prayed two weeks ago for the persecuted church around the world because we so often forget. You see, I want to pray these prayers. I want to remember our brothers because in most of history, and in most places of the U.S., this has been the norm, physical persecution. I want that to move me. I want it to shock me out of my indifference and apathy that I have. I'm not called to burn on the stake right now. Maybe God's calling me in Thanksgiving if you're with unbelieving family to stand up for Christ and His righteousness when God's word is being slandered. That you would stand up 
Not combatively, but graciously. Stand out for Christ. That's what God is calling you to do among your coworkers at work. To speak when you want to be mute. Oh, may these stories remind us that we will be persecuted and may we wear that well as Christians, as Christ's servants, as his children. May it move you as well. You see, my intent in sharing these stories of physical persecution is not to make you feel guilty because you haven't suffered likewise. It's to deepen your trust in God and to remember Christ's prediction. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Jesus does not want us to be taken by surprise that we may be tempted or fall away from the faith, whether because we suffer or because those we know around us suffer. The Christian life is difficult. This isn't a bait and switch. God is drawing you in. And later along, he's telling you, oh, really, wasn't as good as I just wanted to get you into the kingdom of God. No, he's telling you out front, this is the cost of following me. He wants you to know. He wants me to know as well. But I've said these things to you, verse 4, that when their hour has come, you may remember that I told them to you, that you may not fall away. The bottom line is this, according to Randy Alcorn, we as Christians should expect to suffer more, not less, since we suffer doubly under the fall and as followers of Christ. So do you, or do you chafe, always looking for a way of escape? Don't. For you can't. Church, have faith. Why? Because God planned it this way. Be. Because this is part of God's redemptive plan, which cannot be thwarted. In quoting the Psalms, most likely he's quoting Psalm 69.4. Jesus reminds us that this is all according to plan. When we read in John 16, verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And so would the world hate you as you take up your cross and follow him. In our time, perhaps no other martyrdom has made more of an impact on so many Christians, on so many students, on so many mission endeavors than the five martyrs who were killed in their attempt to evangelize the Waharani Indians. Perhaps the most well-known of those five is Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. Well, Steve Saint, the son of martyred Nate Saint, makes an astounding statement in a chapter of the book entitled Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. To quote Steve Saint, You know what my conclusion is? I don't think God merely tolerated my dad's death. I don't think he turned away when it was happening. I think he planned it. And then he references Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where we learn that it's God who delivered his son up upon a cross, quote, according to his predetermined plan and foreknowledge. You see, God planned Christ's death for us, a death of cruel hate, oh, which is now our redemption. 
Could it be that God planned Steve's father's death for the good of the Hawaii Indians, for our good, and for his glory? Could it be that God has called you to endure scorn and ridicule to show the power of the cross and the gospel to a dying world? I say yes because Christ's words say yes. Don't be surprised. Take courage and faith this morning. If you truly are a Christian, the world will hate you. But that's not the end of the story. Let me leave you with this. As we'll learn in the coming weeks from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is a hard message. I ask that you would give us grace now to respond in faith and not in fear. Oh, bolster our faith now in you that you who has called us will give us the grace to withstand all that we must encounter as followers of you. Lord, thank you that your grace is sufficient. May we experience your grace even now as we affirm the wonderful truths of our Savior. Lord, that the safest place we can possibly be right now is in Christ, is in your presence. May that be, that be where we want to be and nowhere else this morning. Lord, may we see as you see. Fit our eyes now to see the bigger picture of what it means to follow you even to the ends of the earth, we pray. Amen.